Will you turn with me, please, for our considerations this morning to that second scripture reading, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, of course, one of the most important chapters in the whole world, Word of God. People frequently ask, do they not, why is there so much suffering in this world today? How can we explain how a world so full of misery and hatred and evil and wickedness could come from the hands of a gracious and a kind and a merciful God? Well, the answer is very simple. It didn't come from the hands of a gracious and kind and merciful God. The creation that God made was very good, as we read at the end of chapter 1, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The problem came when Eve took notion that God might have been wrong, and that she listened to the voice of the tempter, and she turned away from the Lord, and she hearkened to his lies, and following his lies, she broke the commandment that God had given her and Adam, her husband, not to eat of the fruit. And she gave to Adam, and as we read there in that uh, verse, in, uh, in uh, verse uh, 6, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And both of them, from that time on, were rebels. They had embarked upon the course of rebellion against God. They had taken up arms. Now they were no longer obedient servants, but their whole natures were corrupted, and they became rebels. Instead of loving the Lord and wanting the Lord, they became his sworn enemies. And they were friends of the devil now. They had changed sides. And now their desires were after their own wicked ways, and they followed their own wicked ways against God. And, of course, that has brought the world into all the dreadful, dreadful evil that we see all around us. But I don't want primarily to dwell upon that this morning. Our focus this morning is on how the Lord deals with Adam and Eve after they have committed that dreadful sin. And it's a wonderful story, because consider, of, consider how evil and ungrateful Adam and Eve had done. They had spat in God's face. He had given them everything they had, and they had shaken their fist at him and rebelled against him. Ingratitude was one of the huge aspects of this sin. Ungrateful to God. It was rebellion against his authority over him, over them. It was theft of the things that God had forbidden them. All those things are part of what they had done. It was covetous, wanting things that God had forbidden. So all these things they had done, and yet, what would God do? Now the Lord comes to them. He comes to them walking in the, uh, in the cool of the day. How would he deal with Adam and Eve? He had spoken to them those words, well, he had spoken the words to Adam. He had said in verse 17 of chapter 2, um, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God had said they would die. So surely as God comes walking through the garden to them now, they had no expectation, really, if they had listened to what God had said and still had it in mind, no expectation, but that they, their lives should be taken from them and they should be laid in the ground that very day. And yet how does God come? 
We read there in verse um, 8 and verse 9. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, in the, sorry, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam. God is merciful. The first actions of God towards his humankind as he comes towards them is merciful. He does not give them that which they deserve. And that's mercy. Mercy begins with God withholding the punishment that we so rightfully deserve. And God doesn't come to them to, to judge them and to cast them into the earth. God comes to them in great mercy. But how then is it true what God had said that that thou shalt surely die. Well, two things happened immediately. The first thing is that they became mortal. And the dying process began. From the day that we begin, we are dying. Every hour, cells are passing away. We are growing older. We are on the march towards the final breath. And that happened now to Adam and Eve. They became mortal. And they were from that day onwards, their time was limited. There would come a time, as God says there later on in chapter 3, Dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. They lost eternal life. They lost eternal existence. Well, they didn't lose eternal existence because they shall live forever, but they shall die. Death would have to come to them. But the second thing that actually did happen to them was that they died spiritually. They lost that holiness and that purity of heart which they originally had they became sinners and they were sinners now god has no need to exercise mercy towards sinless beings when they were sinless they needed no mercy this is the first exercise of mercy on behalf of god the first mercy in the bible is here as god comes walking to adam and eve in the cool of the day and have we realised that although we have rebelled against God, although we have maybe gone very, very far in sin, yet he is still a God of mercy towards us. That's a lovely thought, isn't it? He is still a God of kindness. The fact that you have drawn breath this morning is the sheer mercy of God. God has not laid you in the earth where you deserve to be. The fact that we still are here in this place speaking and thinking is an act of sheer mercy of God. They were still alive. Well, here we are. God was not ignorant of what had happened. When God comes asking these questions, it's not that he had to come to find out. When he was in heaven, before he came walking in the cool of the day, he knew exactly what had happened. We'll see this shortly as we come to the questioning. He knew what had happened. No, he came deliberately in mercy and kindness to seek the fallen and to seek to bring truth and messages of kindness to them. So that's the first thing that we understand. The second thing we understand, the Lord comes to us in mercy. But secondly, the Lord comes to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is very, very important. The Lord Jesus Christ does not just enter the pages of Scripture at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. When we read here that the Lord 
came walking in the garden, we say, well, how can that be? God is a spirit. God hath not a body like man. God does not have arms and legs. He is not like those hideous Roman and Greek gods that are half man and half God. No, God is a pure spirit. So how come he comes walking, appearing to them in the form of a man? And we say, well, this is something that happens occasionally in the Old Testament. We find it, for example, he appeared in the same way to Abraham. He appeared in the same way to Hagar. He appeared like this to Joshua. He appeared like this to Gideon in a human form. And yet it was God himself. And we say, well, what is this? The Bible, well, the, the theologians use a word for it. They call it a theophany. And we have an interpretation of this in the New Testament, in John's Gospel, in chapter 1 and verse 18. We read these words. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. No one has seen God at any time. All the revelations of God to mankind come through Jesus Christ. I suppose I ought to backtrack slightly. We know that God is not a single unity, a simple single unity, but that he is three in one. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Son is the one who came to this earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and was incarnate. He was God made manifest amongst us, the second person of the Trinity, born of the Virgin Mary, taking upon himself human nature, perfect, sinless human nature, but a true and a proper human nature, not half man, half God, but holy man, and yet holy God at the same time, not leaving his Godhead behind him in heaven, but bringing it to earth. So he was holy God, but he was completely and fully human, just like you, except for sin. He did not have that sinful nature. He came to earth with a pure and a holy, sinful, uh, sinless nature. And he dwelt amongst us. But from time to time in the Old Testament, that coming was anticipated in that he took upon himself the form of a human, not truly incarnate at that stage. That would only come to pass uh, through the Virgin Mary. But no, he took upon himself the form of a human being. And that's what happened here, when he came walking in the garden and speaking to Adam and Eve. It's the only way God has made himself known to humans is through the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read there in John 1, verse 18. Um, sorry, just to, to give you that verse again. In, in John 1, verse 18, we read that word, did we not? Uh, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So this was the Lord Jesus Christ. And when God comes to us in grace and mercy to give us new life and to pardon our sins, he comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot have any dealings with God other than through Christ, because it is in Christ alone that sins are forgiven. If we bypass Christ... We come before God in all of our sins. We come before God and his wrath must be upon us. We have nothing to bring God outside of Christ. We cannot present our works and our, our deeds and our merits because we have none. We have merited God's 
punishment. And yet Jesus Christ merited eternal life. And if we come trusting in him, then for Jesus' sake, God can give us eternal life. So this is the second and the vital way in which God comes to us. He comes to us in mercy and he comes to us in the person of his son. But thirdly, the Lord God comes to us before we ever start to seek him. Look at that verse 8. Look at that verse 8. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Here is God. Here is Adam and Eve. Who is doing the approaching? Is God coming towards Adam and Eve? Or Adam and Eve coming towards God? Is God coming towards Adam and Eve? What are Adam and Eve doing? They're running away. They're fleeing. They're going to hide. It's always that way in life with God. God is the one who does the seeking. What we do is the running. We flee from God. We do not want God. We do not want him to come to us with his blessings of pardon and forgiveness. We're on the run from God. And that's what Adam and Eve were doing here. We read there in verse 7 that the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They had a sense, all of a sudden, when they ate that fruit, they had a sense of guilt. They had a sense of shame. And they felt that they were exposed and open to God and his holy gaze was upon them and they couldn't bear it. And so they did two things to try to, to escape that search of God. The first thing was they had this rather pathetic effort to cover up their nakedness with fig leaves. And then when they hear him coming towards them, they run and they hide to get out of his gaze. And we are doing that. We are pushing away from us the revelation of truth. God is all around us. We lift our eyes. We see the birds above our heads and the sky and the moon and the stars. We see the, the trees. We see so many wonderful things. We look in our hearts and we see there that we have a conscience that speaks to us about right and wrong and that convicts us sometimes of wrongdoing. But we push these things away. We are fleeing, running away from God all the time. And that's, that's the nature of fallen human beings. That's the nature of you, and that's the nature of me. That's why we, we do it. But, but why? Why do we run from God? Well, one of the reasons is because we feel ourselves under his, his wrath and his anger, and there's a sense of shame and of failure. But there's something else as well, which is worth noting as we just move on from this point. In verse 5, the devil had spoken, Satan in the person of this serpent, had spoken to Eve. And he said, for God doth know that in the day thereof ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan had persuaded the, the woman that God was a bit of a mean so-and-so that God wanted something less than good for them. He had told lies about God's nature and God's character, and Eve had believed him. He thought that God 
wasn't going to give them the very best. That here were things that God had said, don't have these. And Satan is saying, actually, they're really good and you ought to have them. Lies that go out all the time now. But Satan had undermined the Lord's character. He'd he'd done it earlier on. He, He said to her, hath God said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Oh, God is a meanie. Those beautiful orange trees, those beautiful fig trees, has God said you can't have those? Well, of course God had said no such thing. There was just one tree, one tree only. All the rest they could take freely and eat. But Satan misrepresents God to them and Satan's misrepresentations sink in so that Adam and Eve have this apprehension of God that he is not a kind and a good and a generous God. And that's another reason why they're on the run from him. They have no idea of the mercy and the kindness of God. And I have to say this, if we've never placed our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have no idea of the goodness of the Lord and how truly merciful and kind he is. And of all the things that God would do for us, it's something that strikes us amazingly and wonderfully when we come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we come to the cross and we place our trust in Jesus Christ, we understand the love that was in his heart when he went to the cross. We've not a real inkling of it until we come to place our trust in him and understand how much he loved me and gave himself for me. It's a wonderful truth. So, Push away from yourself any thoughts that you have of God being a hard or an unkind or a mean person or un, uh, unreliable. God is full of goodness and grace and we are on the run from him. All the fleeing is on our side. That's the message really I'm trying to bring out to you here. But then fourthly, the Lord God comes to us by his word. If you have a look at uh, verse 8 there, They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. See, they heard the voice. God was speaking. And then in verse 9, the Lord calls to them, where art thou? And then he asks questions of them. uh, Who told thee thou wast naked? And so forth. God comes speaking, speaking, speaking to them. Now, this is important. Again, this is a hallmark of true religion. All true religion is word-based. True biblical religion takes its spring from what God speaks. And God has spoken. God has spoken from Genesis to Revelation is the word of God. Every syllable is God speaking to us. Outside of this, not a single syllable is God speaking to us. This and this alone is the word of God. Satan will try to undermine it. Satan will try to twist it. He did earlier in this chapter but when God comes to us he comes through this word he doesn't come through rituals he doesn't come through incense he doesn't come through fancy uh, uh, ceremonies in in churches he doesn't come to us in uh, beautiful man-made poems the hymns that we sing are only good for us as far as they reflect this book Now, we thank God that so many of our great hymns, all the hymns in this book, faithfully reflect the scriptures. But uh, you won't get to God other ways, sacraments and ceremonies and rituals and so forth. This book, you see, is clear. 
God has spoken plainly. God has spoken truth. When you're in this book, every word is truth. It's truly revealed of God. Now, okay, there are some things recorded in the book where God actually records evil men speaking, but it's recorded under the inspiration of God to teach us. But no, we can count and we can rely. You're on solid ground. You're on solid rock when you stand on this. You're not on human opinions. You're listening to the very word of God. When I read this book from the pulpit, when you pick it up in your homes and you read it, it's as if God is standing in your bedroom speaking to you. That's the authority of this book. That's the certainty of this book. It's as if God is standing next to you and speaking to you in the pages of this book. So we must hear it. And it comes to us. And as we go through this, we have, I'm afraid I'm running out of time, but as we go through this, we see it searches us. Let's go on to that. It, these questions. God comes to us in a very searching manner to call us to repentance. God speaks to the people there. God speaks to Adam, first of all, in verse 9. Where art thou? And he, when Adam answers that he's naked, in verse 11, God says to him, Who told thee that thou wast naked? And then he says, the woman gave me to eat. And uh, Satan, uh, the Lord God asks the woman in verse 13, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman answers and said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And in verse 14, the, then the Lord speaks to the serpent. But you see, the Lord comes asking questions, asking questions of Adam and then asking questions of Eve. Why is he asking these questions? Is he asking these questions to discover the truth? Well, no. God knows exactly what they have done. God knows perfectly well what they have done. So why does he come asking these questions? Well, he is giving them the opportunity to own up. It's like those of you who are mums and dads, you ask questions of your children, you know exactly what they've done. Who was it that spilt the paint pot outside? And you know that it was little Johnny. But you ask him, did you do that? No, no, you're giving me an opportunity to own up. But God is doing the same thing. Notice that when he comes to Satan in verse 14, the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed. No, no question for Satan. Why did he not ask a question of Satan? Because Satan is beyond repentance. God comes to Adam and Eve asking these questions to lead them to repentance, to seek to bring them in his mercy and his kindness to own up. And owning up to our sin is the first step in repentance. We must confess our sins to God. We must make a full breast of them. We must pray to him and tell him that we have sinned against him. Confess specific sins if you know of specific sins that are on your heart. Own up to them. Tell him about He knows them already, but he wants to hear it from your lips. That's why he came to Adam and Eve like this. When God comes to sinful man and woman, it's the same each time. He comes in the person of his son. He comes in mercy. He comes through his word. He comes to bring us to confess our sins. That's what he's driving at, to bring us to confession and to sin, of, of our sins. But then we move on. Let's go down the verses in this passage, right down to chapter verse 14 and 15. And the serpent, the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and so forth. Then in verse 15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, 
and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Notice, his heel. Thy seed and her seed, there's, there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and, and the seed of the serpent. It shall bruise thy head. Not they shall bruise thy head. It, a single person, a single being, um, shall bruise thy head. Some scripture translations have the word he, and that is actually a better translation than the King James. It is actually he shall bruise thy head. So the, this is a promise to the serpent, not a very nice promise for the serpent, but a wonderful promise for us, that one day there would come someone from Eve's seed, from the human race, who would bruise Satan's head, an individual would be born into the human race who would destroy the works of Satan. You crush a serpent on the head and you bruise it, you, you break its head, you destroy it. One who would come who would overturn sin, who would overturn Satan, who would do that work to undo the fall and to make things perfect and good again. That person was Jesus Christ. He would come. And this was the hope of mankind, the hope of Israel down through the years. He would come, born of Eve's line. And he would, but notice what it says, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is the picture of a person stepping on the head of a snake and yet as the snake dies, it bites the heel of its slayer. And in biting the heel, of course, that's going to be dreadful pain, indescribable pain. And uh, the Saviour came to this earth and he destroyed the works of Satan upon Calvary's tree. But look what it cost him. It cost his lifeblood. He bowed his head and he died. The hands through his, the, the, the nails through his hands and his feet, the spear in the side, the the, the, the thorn-crowned brow, all those things were not the worst of his suffering. He did battle with Satan. Who knows what the forces of the demons and Satan were doing to Christ as he was on the cross and how they, 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 they tortured him. But worst of all were those dreadful words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As the son was abandoned and as the son suffered the wrath of almighty God in his soul. There we are. This is the great message that this passage brings to us, the message of a coming saviour. And in all the ways that God comes to us, in his mercy, uh, in, his, um, in his word, in the person of his son, uh, bringing us to repentance, he comes to us bringing us this message of a dying saviour. It's there in Genesis 3 and it's there all the way through the Old Testament. But we must finish. We're going to finish in verse 24. So Adam and Eve were, were driven out of Satan. Pardon me. Sorry, sorry no, we're not going to go. We're going, we're going to go to um, verse... We're going to go, go to... Pardon me, I'm getting myself a bit confused here. We're going to go to verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. He took off those silly tunics that they'd made for themselves and he slew an animal and he covered them with the skin of the animal. Now there's a message here. There's a message that you cannot cover yourselves, but I will provide a covering. I will slay 
blood must be shed and that shed blood will cover you. And this is a message of blood atonement. It's not very popular in some circles, but this message of blood atonement begins here in chapter 3. The Son of God, who would die and bear the sin of his people, will do it through blood atonement. And that's the only way they can be saved. Well, friends, this is the way that the Saviour comes to us. He comes that way today also. Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. Cherubim and a flaming sword representing God's holiness and God's law forever separated them from God. But there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. God had spelt it out to them. We don't know for certain whether or not Adam and Eve ever truly trusted the Lord. I think there are good evidences that they did. But for you and for me, God approaches us today in the same way. God approaches us through his Son, through his Word, to bring us to repentance and faith in him. If we refuse, then we shall be like Adam and Eve in that flaming sword, forever banished from God. But we can be restored. He is coming to us today, inviting us. Will we hear? Will we believe? Will we repent?